welcome to Relentless Servant Podcast, where we break down the ins and outs of my blog and share the stories that lead up to them. Each week, we'll try to go back into the archives and dig through some old ones, and hopefully um, in the weeks ahead, we'll be able to write some new ones and uh, be able to dig into them too. I pray you're ready to join me for this journey and have some fun and hopefully learn some things about Christ. Welcome back to Relentless Urban Podcast. Again, my name is Mitch Vandenbrook. I'm the voice behind this podcast and the hands behind the blog that is attested to it, both under Relentless Servant. One is podcast and one is blog, obviously. Um, but I love doing these intros with you guys now, and I hope and pray that you guys take some time to pause or write down or go back and listen to the different materials, ministries, and people or churches that I talk about in this in these intros because they are near and dear to my heart and near and dear to how I study how I grow and how I form my um, doctrine theology and premise for all that I teach and preach through this podcast and my blog and to my co-workers and the people that were willing to listen to me uh, you know throughout our days and so um, a fun fact about myself my birthday is February 21st so we just celebrated that and um, I was completely nerded out with all the things that I wanted and so one of the cool things is is hopefully if you've noticed the difference is the audio and my voice my voice is probably the same with audio you can probably hear me a little bit better I asked for a really cool uh, phone holder slash mic set and so I really wanted to invest a little bit so that my podcast could be more beneficial and more clear for you guys so you could hear me a little bit better and actually understand what I'm saying and another gift was amongst others was Hercules Collins and Orthodox Catechism, one of the most genuinely fruitful and amazing and blessings to myself in life has been doing discipleship with a young man um, who I'm, is part of our church and I know his family and I love his family. I've worked with his dad in a couple things with ministry and their family is just so awesome and being able to meet up with him about once a month is one of the coolest things it's like the whole paul timothy thing but somehow timothy has a better vocabulary than paul because this guy he is way too smart for his age um and he's grown up in an amazing christian home and he knows the bible's foundations and and theological foundations and so we just covered different aspects of more the nitty-gritty and all these types of things to help him have a better witness and uh, apologetic stance in his workplace and so one of the things we're going to be covering this month is actually how to study with that type of intention. And uh, so I was gifted with Hercules Collins, Hercules Collins and Orthodox Catechism, and these things are amazing. Catechisms, I think, are one of the most biggest blessings that church fathers have given us. And, uh, you know, early theologians, both male and female, have attested to us um, is their wisdom and is their insight into studying scripture and knowing God's word and going through the different councils that have led to the foundation and the formation of the reformation of, for the Protestant faith that really is just an extension of the early church and what the apostles had laid foundation on. Um, and so catechisms are neat because what they are, they're pretty much a list of questions broken up into sections and each question has an answer with it that then has scriptural references for backing up why. Um, and so it's, I'll give you an example here. Um, he has question 12, seeing then by the just judgment of God, we are subject both to temporal and eternal punishments. Is there yet any way or means remaining whereby we may be delivered from these punishments and be reconciled to God? Answer. God will have his justice satisfied, comma, a, therefore it is necessary that we satisfy it either by ourselves or by another, b, 
And then for A, they use the scripture reference of Exodus 25, verse, uh, verse Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 7, and then 23, verse 7. And then for B, they say Romans 8, 3. And so it's this cool tool where we can go through and grapple with the hard questions of the Christian faith for, as he puts it in here, being the sum of the Christian religion containing in the law and the gospels. And we have these questions, and then they give us these answers, and they show us, here's where we studied, here's where we grasped it from, and we can go forth from there. So if you gain nothing else from this podcast today, I pray that you see the benefit of study material of past people's um, wisdom and uh, go find really great, you know, either catechisms or uh, theology papers or sermons that were preached by early church fathers and the early Reformation, because that's the type of stuff that God uses to help push forth the next generations is the wisdom of the last. I mean, look at the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, the book of Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature, even the book of Job in the Old Testament that helped form and found so much doctrine and theology through the later Old Testament, and also into the New Testament in our church today. Um, I personally am fond of the Orthodox Catechism because uh, Hercules Collins tweaked it from the Hildenberg Catechism, which I believe they taught infant baptism. He teaches believers baptism. So that was a huge point for me in there. And um, if you hear that and you're questioning it and you want to talk about it more, reach out, please. But um, this week we are going to dive into my two latest blogs called Dear Judas Iscariot and also Dear Second Chances. Dear Second Chances kind of was a child mark of Dear Jesus Iscariot because of some conversations I had because of that blog, and they were, to say the least, bewildering, and kind uh, of just make you scratch your head. Um, so I pray that that kind of entices you to stick around for the rest of this podcast and that you are ready to dive in. All right, so let's start to cover dear judas iscariot and i told you it was, it was a crazy one it, it was definitely one of the more unique interactions i've had with my blogs uh, via social media and people uh, that i see on a on a in-person basis and the, the funny thing is is um i was i knew that there were like conspiracy theorists out there who would make the claim that judas had some secret pact with christ and I think the best way to depict this like secret pact is like with if you've seen the Harry Potter movies or read the books or whatever. I know that's kind of voodoo for some Christians, but it's it's a book. You can look at it, read it, put it down. It doesn't affect you. Um, you know, it's not like the living word of God that we have the Bible that can be a two-edged sword that cuts bone and marrow. It's literally just a book written by some random person that is for entertainment's sake. Um, and so, but the plot is, is near the end, Professor Snape, who seems to be this just giant butthead and just like hate Harry Potter, at the end ends up dying and it comes to find out that him and Dumbledore, after he even killed Dumbledore, who everyone thought was like the best thing ever and was like the savior of Hogwarts, come to find out they had this plan all along to like save Harry Potter and Snape was this double agent and he was actually like good and... Um, he was on the, the right team all along, and he actually has been looking out for Harry all along and all these things, and that's kind of the picture and the image I get when people bring up the, like, this conspiracy theory of Judas being this double agent disciple that's playing this role of Satan, but really truly is, you know, in God's, you know, good terms and stuff, and scripture doesn't teach us any of that, uh, scripture doesn't even come close to wanting to even make that a reality, 
And one of the remarks that I can already bring up is uh, when someone I was talking to with this was talking about Judas, um, made the claim that Judas was a Christian and that salvation isn't to be understood because it's about the experience. And that's where I was like, N- that there's no, I asked multiple times, you know, where are you getting your scripture from? Where are you getting these from? Like, I'm very interested. And they just kept talking about experience, 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 and feelings, feelings, feelings. And we'll kind of cover that when I hit this, the second blog from this dear second chances. But, um, so in this blog, I broke down all the information that were given about Judas. I mean, we see that he's part of the 12 picked from the crowd in Mark chapter three. We see that he was the one in charge of the group's money in John chapter 13. Um, and then as interactions and situations unfold in Christ's public ministry, we learn more about Judas, such as that he was a thief who stole from the group's money in John chapter 12. He was a liar also told to us in John chapter 12, and he was super greedy in Matthew chapter 26. That's pretty bad off the, off the get go, <laughs> but it's forming the foundation for where we're going next. And I wrote, you know, with such an outward expression of sinfulness that was unrepentant. We don't read where he's sorrowful for any of this. He just keeps doing it and getting worse. Uh, We see the foundations for someone who outwardly was living the motions. He was with the 12, doing the things, witnessing what Jesus was doing and and saying and um, teaching everyone, but inwardly was unchanged. He was still continuing to do all these things with no remorse. And when we're told how he was that indwelt with sin, Judas was then a perfect playground and petri dish for Satan to come in and simply enter into and work through him to plot and pull off the capture and killing of Jesus that we see in Luke chapter 22. And I think kind of the nail in the coffin for me was uh, one of the people who had offense to me saying that Judas was not saved brought the claim up of the other disciples who had committed sins or they, you know, doubted after Christ died and they went back to fishing and kind of gave up hope. But yet they gave up hope, but yet they still held on. They didn't, they didn't end it. But yet Judas, who then realized what he had done in remorse, led to his own self-preservation and self-saving that ended with him falling into suicide. Matthew chapter 27, we read that Judas hung himself. He tried giving the money back to the Pharisees that they paid him when he gave up Christ. And if the other ones had followed Christ this whole entire time and realized he wasn't the Messiah, what other hope did they have? Wouldn't they have fallen into the same remorse and the same path and just said, we've already given up everything, we've lost all our lives um, and our careers, what, what are we supposed to do? Wouldn't they have fallen in despair, walked away, been, we wouldn't even have the rest of the gospel accounts, it would have been done for. You see, when a when someone who's truly surrendered in faith to Christ, their remorse for sin will lead to repentance, which we see all the other disciples show, which we see all the other disciples have fruit of. And yet when Judas had remorse and it hit him, it led to the self-preservation of trying to give the money back and, and, and not knowing what to do once they said, no, it's your money, the blood's on your hands. Instead of taking the knowledge and the witness and the power of everything he had experienced walking with the Twelve and especially walking with the Messiah, he chose to just end it because he didn't bear it anymore. That's what we're given in Scripture. and That's what we're given as authoritative speech and wording. Um, I'm not given any other information that would lead me otherwise. And so... I think it's I think it's beautiful. I I love uh, Stephen Lawson as a pastor and as a theologian, and 
he kind of hit on the doctrine of regeneration this way. He says it's split up into two aspects of the same event of being born again. We see regeneration and conversion. Regeneration being the root of our whole being being transformed by Christ and conversion being the fruit of the Holy Spirit actively working within us. And again, I say Holy Spirit in here and, and people try bringing it up too when the blog was put out that they're like, you know, the Holy Spirit didn't even come until after all of this happened and after, you know, Christ was uh, risen again and all these types of things and, you know, after he ascended. But the fact is, and the, the matter is, is salvation has always been and will always be one specific message. It, it doesn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. The, the, the gospel is the good news of a Messiah who is coming to defeat Satan and sin. So the people of the Old Testament, as as I put, I think, in the second blog, um, there's that first where it says, you know, Abraham's righteousness was accounted to him and, and God accounted his faithfulness as righteousness. And so we see that his faithfulness to the promise of a Messiah to come was enough for him to be saved, just as much now we are told that our faith in Christ who has come is what it takes for us to be born again. That we surrender to that knowledge, we surrender to that reality that we are a sinner who is broken and can't save ourselves, and yet Christ came and died for us. And so we can't discount anything before the coming of the Holy Spirit and say, well, they didn't have the conviction or they didn't have the um, proper knowledge or any of these types of things because they did. Jesus said it himself multiple times in his public ministry that he was the mystery revealed. He was the message of the Old Testament come to fruition. He fulfills the law, the prophets, and the writings. He is the word made flesh. And so, being born again will show us that even when we have sin and we re and then there's remorse, it doesn't lead us into a deeper depression or into more sadness or into hopelessness and lostness and even into suicide, what it does is it leads us into conviction and into wanting to um, repent from and grow from what we did because we know of God's mercy and grace, which Judas was very aware of because he was there for per literally the full public ministry of Christ. He was there for it. He saw it. He heard the words. He knew what it was going to take to make up anything that he had done and yet chose to hang himself he chose to to do what he thought was best for himself and self-preservation and so this is also when i when we talk about the doctrine of regeneration or yeah regeneration or aka being born again this is also the doctrine that throws away any work-based social justice type gospel out the window for we do good because of god's love and mercy making us good it is not that we do good to achieve love and mercy. It's a very, you know, we always attest that to the Catholic faith, which is very true. They're, you know, very faith plus works equal salvation, where it's truly um, faith equals salvation plus works. Because the reality is, is when we are saved, we are completely changed. Micah 6, 8, you know. From there, we are converted and convinced to live differently, act lovingly, and seek just in all ways of life. And so, when we have that true relationship and we are truly born again, we can't help but be convicted 
to live the way that the Word made flesh tells us to live, which is to love God and love others. You know, even when we sin or doubt or fail, we then are convicted and convinced otherwise by the Scripture and the Holy Spirit to then turn back to Jesus and fall into that love and mercy that makes us good, that makes us whole, that makes us able to try again. Um, and it's just... It's funny because what it does is is when we sit there and say that Judas Judas was born again, right? He was born again, but just when he was born again, he was given this hidden treaty or pledge. But the reality is, is for the way Jesus spoke of Judas and it to not be true would then make Jesus a liar and a slanderer, both of which cannot be. You can't say Jesus is the Messiah when then Jesus was the one who told us that Judas was Satan, like that Satan was in Judas. That Judas was greedy, that Judas was a thief, that Judas was a liar. That told us that instead of seeking repentance and, and, and seeking to make things right, he decided to kill himself. That's what we're told. We're not told that, you know, Judas is, you know, here's, by the way, here's an asterisk next to him hanging himself, and this is what it's done. You know, and so for someone who is truly saved and born again, when sin is in their lives occur, it is that they become broken and they want to repent. For someone who's not truly saved or born again, they are broken and they seek self-help and self-preservation. And many people in their sinfulness will try to abuse scripture and Jesus for personal gain. When we saw Judas constantly doing things out of sinfulness and greed towards those who were truly surrendering to Jesus, so that makes you ask, on what grounds do I even have this to say that he's unrepentant or not saved? And I think scripture gives you the grounds. Scripture definitely gives us the grounds for this because we're told in Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 20 that we know a good tree by its fruit. That's true from Genesis all the way into Revelation. It's, it's a theme. That's a, that's a theme of those who are faithful in Christ that a good tree will be known by its fruit. And, and Judas doesn't showing good fruit at all. Consistently not good fruit. Not like the other disciples who were like, mm, well, we slipped up in our sin, you know, here's some bad fruit. No, 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 like, he literally just showed bad fruit. <laughs> there was no repentance with it, there was no, like, oopsies, that fruit kind of got overripe, like, let me, you know, let me grow some better fruit here. Um, but we also see that having a saved heart produces fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. We also see that fake teachers and false believers who are motivated by sin to justify their sin via twisting scripture produce bad fruit. And I really think that's a good way to kind of close out the whole doctrine of regeneration and the story of Judas Iscariot is for you listening and for myself is it really is a heart check. The, the life of Judas is a heart check because outwardly and externally he had everything it took to be born again. He had everything it took to know what the true Messiah was because he was doing life with the true Messiah in Jesus Christ and yet inwardly he was sinful, he was a liar, he was greedy, he was unrepentant of all of it. And then when remorse came, he, he went to self-preservation and um, suicide instead of repentance and conviction and, and redemption. And I think for us to kind of close out this first part with Dear Judas Iscariot, it really, I hope that, yes, we discussed whether he's saved or not and, and all that fun stuff, but I think even more so, I pray that um, you understand two things out of this first part is that a to be born again is to surrender your life to Christ who did the work 
That's what the second part of uh, the blog hits on with the doctrine of limited atonement is Christ did the work. He paid the price. He went to the cross for our sins and so that when we surrender to him via the Holy Spirit, he makes us new, meaning he makes us born again. And by that, we can show good fruit in sanctification. We can do as uh, Stephen Lawson taught about. We are then regenerated and then we are converted into wanting to live out the law and the gospel, to live out the loving God and love others. We Then when we acknowledge our sinful nature, we can then sit there and we can have remorse and conviction over it and not feel condemned to the point of doing what Judas did. And so I pray as we close out this first part that you uh, really just evaluate it, you think about it, you sit on it, and, and you kind of check your life, check your, check your walk, see what fruit you're producing. You know, where, what is your faith truly being placed in? Is it being placed in all the external around you like that? You are doing your devos in every day and going to church every Sunday and Wednesday and you're doing this, 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 because if you're doing that, you're simply just in the law, right? Because the law tells us to do where the gospel tells us that it is done. Christ yelled out to Telestai on the cross and that it is finished. His blood, his sacrifice, his life given for the sins of man. That is the gospel. And that is the power that then makes us born again. Not the power of us doing X, Y, and Z. Remember we talked about that, that our salvation is not contingent on what we do and to earn it, but we do things and we produce good fruit because of what has been done. And when we are born again into that life of having Christ make us new, we now have faith to go out and do what God has commanded us to do because of the love and mercy and grace that he has shown us. And so I pray that you now stick with me. We're going to dive into Dear Second Chances and talk about the heresies of universalism and annihilationism, which honestly are way more common than what you think with those titles. Um, but again, I pray that this first half really spoke to you about being born again and truly what the power of the gospel is and that um, A, Judas wasn't saved, but B, more so than ever, I want you to know where you stand because you can. Because you can know where you stand. You're either with Christ or without Christ. It's very simple. And there's going to be a lot of people out there who claim to be born again, but you can look at the fruit to truly see. So I pray you join me here in just a second and dive into the second part. Welcome back. I hope that first part was encouraging and uh, honestly eye-opening for you. I know as I did the study, it was definitely a self-check for me to be able to just take a step back and truly say, hey, is my life producing good fruit? Is my life a witness to the fact that I am born again in Christ? That my hope is found in nothing else but the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus, right? And I and I pray that for you. I pray that if you aren't a believer and you're listening to this thinking I'm just crazy, um, I pray that you dive into it, study it, look at it for yourself. Or if that you're still one of those conspiracy theorists who think Judas was a great person and had the secret, you know, Professor Snape plot with Christ, that uh, you do your own study. You dive into it for yourself. Study the doctrine of regeneration. Study the doctrine of atonement. And see if that still leads you to think that Judas was saved or 
still leads you to think that doing external things or being around saved people or the Messiah, even the name of Jesus being around that simply is what's good enough. Um, but now to dive into the next blog, Dear Second Chances, this is a byproduct of the conversations again that I had with my that first blog. And I want to just, this was, a, this was a quote that I got from somebody who was discussing the theology of salvation with me. And they said, we cannot know slash understand salvation for it is a free gift. Our experience is what validates our salvation. And it was in that moment that I, I understood or exactly where they were coming from. And it's sad, but it's, it's so many people out there who struggle with this that um, when we listen to preaching and we listen to songs and we, and we talk to people who are very emotion-driven um, and, and really treat Scripture as this emotional experience um, where we invite Jesus into our lives and we, uh, you know, we feel the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and all these things, almost very Pentecostal, charismatic type notions, we can get to the point of almost a progressive idea that scripture is almost now a secondary product to our experience and not our experience being a secondary product of scripture. Um, and that was very prevalent and, and made in that statement. Again, it said, you know, we cannot know or understand salvation for it is a free gift. And that part blew my mind. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that people do treat scripture secondary to ourselves, to kind of our notions. And that goes back to two very major um, heresies that, again, were in the early church and are now still coming afoot. I mean, a universalism, which is a very high proponent of a guy named Rob Bell, who teaches this. He was pretty much, this is what universalism is. It's, it's the school of thought that states that, in short, God will save all of humanity regardless of repentance or surrender to Christ in their earthly lifetime. And there's two main passages that proponents of universalism really champion and that unfortunately don't give them much weight, but we'll dive into them in a second. Um, again, why I think universalism and annihilationism tie back to the statement of what she said is because if we properly understood salvation, which we can, we know that we are sinners on a hellbound race to eternity away from God. And it is only through Christ Jesus that when we surrender, he turns us back onto the right path, onto a path now running a race of endurance towards the kingdom of God. So there is eternal damnation and there is eternal peace. There is a location for the wretched and the broken and the rot and the sinful. And there is a location for those who are born again Christians who are made new by the Holy Spirit, who are regenerated by the triune God. That, that is, those are vital teachings in the word so then when we come across stuff like universalism that teaches that all men will be saved regardless because of what Christ did we know we, you pretty much take away the fact that Jesus had to be crucified you, you tried to make it to where God's love outweighs God's justice God's mercy outweighs God's goodness and his holiness you can't have one without the other, for he is a perfect balance of all of those attributes. And so the two passages they really hit on for universalism is uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21. And the whole passage is pretty much a depiction of the federal headship of Adam. It's where through one man, sin entered the world. And through um, 
one better man, pretty much salvation came to all men. And what they try to do is they try to use that verbiage of one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. And that to them pretty much means that all men are now justified because if, if sin per, per, propelled out of Adam's federal headship onto all of humanity and to us today, then obviously what Christ did is good enough for everyone and is going to be sufficient for everyone and thus then everyone's going to be in heaven no matter what, even if you don't believe in the Bible and you just think it's a doodle book and you've done some book burnings with it, right? But what they fail to do is they fail to look at the rest of the letter of Romans in the context of where this passage is even coming from and let alone even just understanding, again, salvation. Because people who claim that, obviously, are also claiming that you cannot know salvation. Because what it's saying is, you look at Romans 1, 16 uh, and 17, Romans 3, 22, 28, Romans 4, 5, and 13, what Paul is actually teaching is that the headship doctrine of of Adam with humanity and then the doctrine of original sin with Adam is the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the reality of penile substitutionary atonement, the curse was placed on all man. We we have sin effect, we are broken, we are dying both spiritually and physically currently and we are on our way to hell. But the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross and the atonement that he gave made a way in which all men are now responsible to either surrender or disobey. See, because Adam brought the reality of sin, Jesus now brings the reality of salvation to all men. So salvation is now available to all. But we are still morally responsible to either surrender or disobey. That's the truth of what he's teaching through the whole letter of Romans. And then we see uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 4, 10. The first verse states that the reality of God is that he desires all men to be saved. And it's sad because people who twist scripture will always go for wording, right? But if we go for wording, it says God desires all men to be saved. That's good. That's a just God. That's a, that's a loving God. That's a merciful God. He desires that, right? But that's not a decree. You know, he doesn't have this righteous, perfect mandate that he institutes, but rather it's a glimpse into the heart of God's love for humanity and why Christ was sent to die for our sins. God had a desire in the garden to walk with Adam and Eve, but yet they fell and gave into sin. So we need to be very careful trying to read what God desires as what God decrees. Because those are two very vital aspects that are perfectly balanced within him again. The second verse, 410 you know, God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe, which again, proponents of universalism then claim, oh, well, again, so, you know, God is the savior of all men, meaning all men are saved. Yet literally you have to finish the verse where it says, especially those who believe. So again, we cannot confuse the desires and the decrees here because God is the savior of all for it is only in and through him that salvation is even possible. So yeah, God provided salvation for all. He provided the opportunity for us, again, to be morally responsible to that. From Genesis 3.15 with the promise in the garden to John 3.16 where Christ laid down his life so that whoever believes shall have eternal life. So then that's what it says. Yet true salvation only is for those who surrender and believe. Because it says especially for those who believe. He makes that distinction very clear. So again, there's a specific group. There's a specific people in humanity who will experience eternal life with Christ? Not a universal group, 
but people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who have surrendered their lives into there. And then so that, that's kind of universalism, the heresy of it, but that's literally, I hope, opens your eyes to the fallacy of it by simply taking the two verses that they try to use the most to teach it as to then now turn you hopefully away from that. Um, and then the other one that kind of comes from when you say you can't understand salvation, you can't understand that free gift of eternal life, um, I think another proponent of that is is annihilationism, which in this school of thought is that all who do not surrender to Christ will spend a short amount of time in hell and then eventually be done away with. So there's two, that's the main orthodox path. There's also one where it says that they will go to hell for a short period of time, face their punishment, be cleansed of their sin, and then go back into heaven, which is just a weird in-between of universalism and annihilationism, um, which unfortunately i've already addressed you know the biblical case for hell in a blog previously um but when you read verses that have the verbiage of you know they shall perish or they are going to be led to destruction they fail to see it in the context of eternity we are we are eternal beings you we cannot separate man from their eternal being for this is what makes us unique in creation and unfortunately, there's, man, and one of the podcasts I used to listen to that really got me into podcasts was the Bible Project. And I even used their material of going through the Old Testament, New Testament to help me in my Old Testament intro classes and New Testament intro classes for my bachelor's degree. But more and more as I started reading and watching their stuff and listening, Tim Mackey would start to say weird things. And, and it finally dawned on me when he made this comment. He goes, um, when interpreting Genesis, the two trees in light... Um, in the light that man was uh, to gain eternal life from the tree of life, so we are made without eternal realities. So what he's saying is that uh, the whole reality of Eden was that we were going to walk with God into eternal life um, as temporal beings made temporal with nothing else about us. Nothing different than the animals or the fish or the trees. We were kind of you know the same thing, but we were going to walk with God to eternal life. And so when we sinned and fell... Um, and we don't accept Christ, now we are just simply still those temporal beings that are going to die and not have to, you know, we either deal with hell for a little bit and we just dispense, or we just don't even deal with anything, we're just gone. But yet this horrible thinking already goes to show that the, you're not understanding even the tree of life in proper context. Because the reality is, is that we know the tree of life is truly the substance in which eternity of man is maintained, not obtained. Revelation in the last three chapter also serves these truths that hell is real, that hell is eternal, because we are eternal beings. We see even in Revelation 21, we see the reality of the tree of life, um, because it's feeding the rivers, and it's it has fruit that's good for living and healing and, and all these things. It's supplying stuff. It's not giving to obtain, but it's supplying the nutrition for what's going to be there. And I think that's vital for us to understand is that the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden so that we could have the nourishment and the and the physical reality of, of what it meant to be eternal as we walked with God. It wasn't something that we were walking to obtain. It's something that we were created with. And so we have one or two destinies that we go to, either the new heaven and earth with Christ and God and the Holy Spirit or hell where Satan and the wicked shall be. And I think this is... I'll just read these verses from Revelation 20.10. It says, And then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were, 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found in the written book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their proportion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 21 verse 8. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 22, 14 through 15. I don't know how else to put it, but scripture doesn't teach this temporal reality of human beings. It doesn't teach this temporal reality of, of an eternal location. Um, we see all through uh, the book of Thessal- the two books of Thessalonians also that we are um, saved from eternal judgment and all these types of things because of the fact that we are eternal creatures. And, and it goes back to teach us again this. It, it teaches us that salvation was by means of faith in the Messiah to come via the Old Testament. And salvation is by means of grace through faith in the Messiah who did come. Same reality and divine truth. Romans 4 and then 2 Corinthians 5.21. These two heresies are, are brutal in, in the list that we've already covered of other heresies. Um, and I think they stem from a lack of wanting to truly understand scripture. People want to read scripture to make themselves feel better nine times out of ten. And it's sad and it sucks. And that's why I love my church so much. Because right now, our pastor had did a survey. He surveyed the nation. He surveyed the people and, and really just read this, this current state of our world and goes, our problem is biblical illiteracy. And so now he's on a three-year journey of going through this Bible and the scriptures and diving into the doctrine and theology that these books hold for us so that we don't make these mistakes of these falsehoods and end up in the lake of fire. Like I said, those who practice falsehoods, to sit there and claim that we cannot know salvation, that we can't understand it because it's a free gift, is pretty much one of the biggest lies I think anyone could ever say. And it's hurtful and it's detrimental, and we got to stay away from that. And it's, I called this one Dear Second Chance because it was actually on a sermon I preached on the two doctrines of God's sovereignty and perseverance of the saints or persevering grace. Um, and I actually went through the passage of 1 Peter 3 18 through 20 because I had a conversation with a guy who swore, he was like, I know, I'm not sure, but like, I'm pretty sure. That like, you know, the nation of Israel and ethnic Jews and all these types of things, even though they died in disobedience, they're going to have a second chance. And all these people of the Old Testament are going to have the second chance, right? Because now Christ is finally here and they can see him. Um, because First Peter three eighteen through 20 talks about how Christ was quickened in the spirit, went down to the spirits and proclaimed a truth. And then kind of, you know, and it moves on. And so... Um, they take that as this notion of almost a second chance after death. And they, he talks about, you know, in the days of Noah, he goes on to the people in like the days of Noah. And um, so what this did for me is, is I took this part and I broke it down, you know, and said, dead in flesh and alive in the spirit, John 1930, on the cross, he yelled, it is finished. Like in John chapter 1930, that's where we talked about earlier, like he yelled out to tell us that, like, it is finished. That literally 
what Christ did was it. In three days, Christ bodily resurrected, and then shortly after, as his final teachings on earth, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So proclaiming in the passage of 1 Peter is the Greek word kyrios, which means to herald the divine truth. Whereas in Mark 1.14, Jesus gives a specific kyrios, which was the divine truth, but it was the gospel. And we're told that it was the gospel. We're told what it was. It was, you know, repent for the kingdom was at hand, right? So he didn't go down to preach a second time the beauty of the gospel in hopes that some or all would get saved down there, but to solidify Noah and the other faithful. And he went and brought the divine truth of the Messiah was real and had come to them. And so to give some background to that, Noah is named this because he was supposed to be the promise and the change back to the creation, to the garden narrative. That's what Noah means. It was pretty much the second, this new hope um, to get back to creation. And then we read in Genesis 6 that the world was getting increasingly dark and sinful again, but Noah had found favor in God's eyes. And there was a covenant made to renew um, the promise and made in the garden. In Genesis chapter 8, we see the water subside. Noah and his family emerge from the ark, and they reestablish the garden narrative. They were going to be fruitful and multiply and go throughout all the earth, you know, right? And then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that God wants us to seek him, seek him with our whole heart and to remember the covenant. Genesis 2, you know, after Joshua dies, they enter the promised land, and God rises up judges to help the people remember their covenant. Nehemiah 9, the prophet spoke to the people of God in the spirit of God. Then, then we are told about that faithful remnant like we talked about, right? And then in Malachi 3, 16 through 18, we see there's a scroll of remembrance. The reality is that in the Old Testament, God had already had a plan for new humanity, and it was to persevere and be with those who truly keep the covenant promise and trust in the Savior to come from that promise made in Genesis 3. The whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and writing all point to this reality. It truly does. And so God made a promise and a threat in Genesis, and it's continued through the people that he will use to bring the new humanity, and ultimately through Christ, who was being proclaimed by the prophets and by Noah and by all these people. So what I wrote in here truly was, um, we clearly see in Malachi 3 that those who truly fear the Lord were written in a book, and it would be made clear once again the difference between righteous and unrighteous. There's no second chances. They had their time given the truth of the redemptive plan. So we can't look at that verse in 1 Peter 3 and go, oh, okay, well, you know, so I guess that just means that uh, Jesus, you know, gives second chances and that we have a second chance, so I can just do whatever I want here on earth. No. Christ went down and solidified the message of the Old Testament heralds of the good news, of those who were faithful in keeping the promise, of those who went and proclaimed the promise from Genesis 3.15 on those who were faithful like Abraham and Noah, those who held the message near and dear like the prophets, Christ went down and solidified his reality to those already so that it would be known. That known that, that they would that they would realize that they were without an excuse because they had been given that message and here it is now fulfilled. And I think that's also a beautiful picture. I think everything we've talked about already with Judas and being born again, you know, universalism and annihilationism, um, the atonement, I think a lot of that then still stirs the question of, well, like, what about those people who say they were saved, but like walk away or, um, you know, they say they're saved, but they just really live this way or, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, take, take whatever that is. Um, and a lot of 
Christians teach that you can lose your salvation. But that's where the beauty of the doctrine of persevering grace comes in. Because it says that God will keep us through it all. Like he did the people at the covenant promise, right? I mean, we see it all through the passages that I just read about and wrote about in this blog. Um, there's this beautiful reality to the fact that um, is given to us in, I believe it's Romans, yeah, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. We see that literally nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I made these notes in the blog. I said, you know, God gave his son for us. So much more will he be with us that are atoned by his son's blood. Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, and those who are in Jesus are covered in the intercession by Jesus constantly. So even when we sin and mess up, Christ is there to faithfully intercede on our behalves. Because again, if we're truly born again, we will feel that conviction and that remorse and that seeking of redemption will come when we plead out to God for forgiveness and Christ does that for us. And then God the Father perfectly loves his Son. So we are, if we are in Jesus, we are in that perfect love. And if it's a perfect love, it can't be broken by anything or anyone. And so it's it's this beautiful thing of in Ephesians 1, I think, verses 3 through 14. It goes to show us that our salvation was ordained from eternity's past by God through his grace, which opened up our eyes as sinners and then changed our hearts but via the Holy Spirit. So that we can have faith in the one who called us according to his plan and purpose. We need to realize that salvation is a completed work. It's not this open-ended book where we can be invited invited into, right? We invite Christ into our heart, right? That's what people always tell you. But what that does is it creates this weird, again, this work-based notion of salvation still being worked out in a sense of it not being completed. But again, we were told by Christ on the cross that it was that it was completed, and that we now do have an out from this eternal path to hell. We now have a Savior who has come down, shed his perfect blood for us, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, and when we surrender to that reality of his kingship and his lordship and his saviorness, right, we are then born again, and because of that, we bear good fruit. We bear fruit that shows hope in the uncertainty that shows peace in the aggression that shows kindness when the world is wicked and broken that shows when we do sin that we ask for forgiveness that we repent of it and that we strive to do better the next time knowing that we're going to fail knowing that christ is going to supplement us with even more and more grace that we go then from there and want to do what the lord calls us to do which is to love god and love others so i pray that this just recap of these two blogs really just inspires you. I hope you are able to go visit those two blogs, read them, and, and see the scripture verses again. And um, I truly pray that this uh, kind of gives a new outlook on the whole concept of born-again Christian because I think the world has coined it in such a way to where it's almost like an insult or it's like this funny term. But the reality of being a born-again Christian is the most beautiful thing because what it means is I am now made new by the one true savior jesus christ and i no longer have to be on one track way to hell for the rest of my eternity i can now spend my eternity in the presence of a triune god who is going to give us a new heaven a new earth and a, and a new eternity that is going to be 
unthinkable compared to an eternity that we choose when we decide to just stay in our sin and the comfort of it. So I pray that you don't fall trapped to the false heresies of universalism and just assume that we're all going to be good at the end because we're told we're not. And I pray you also don't fall suit into just like, well, yeah, a little torment and then I'm gone forever. So what does it matter? Because you're not. You're going to be there for eternity. There will be unending suffering. There will be unending punishment. And it's it, it doesn't have to be the end of the story there. Because we do have the reality of Christ Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sins so that when we surrender to him, we can be born again. We can actually do good things in this world and go and make differences in this world without a selfish notion or a sinful desire behind it, but truly off the premise that we are doing it for Christ who commissions us out of grace and mercy to go and do good works, not to do good works and make us feel better or obtain anything, but we do it because we have already obtained the perfect love, grace, and mercy that is in Christ. And so now we can live differently each and every day bearing good fruit. I pray you reach out, respond if you have any questions, um, if you have any concerns, or if you uh, are just completely upset at everything I just said. Uh, let's talk. I want to I talk it out. I love interacting with you all on social media and in person. Um, but just to end with a, with a recap, um, we... Think and we can confidently say that uh, Judas is the perfect example of of an outward um, display that really we thought might have shown us something good, but at the end was inwardly dead. Judas wasn't saved. He he was the he was the prime example of outwardly things will never save us. It is the inwardness of surrender that we give to Christ that saves us, and we see that His blood is perfect to do that. Even with the reality of sinners, it is perfect to do that in the doctrine of atonement and regeneration. Then we also covered the fact that universalism is a horrible heresy that uh, leads people astray and leads them away from the gospel, and so is annihilationism. Um, Both give a man-made out to a man-justified reason of why they can just do whatever they want, Um, but that you also can't lose your salvation. That if you're truly born again, if you truly have given your life to Christ and you've surrendered all of who you are to the Holy Spirit to be born again, you are now unseparable from a triune God. You are wrapped up in that perfect love and you now have grace and mercy to face each and every day, no matter how many times you mess up, knowing that as you work towards not messing up as much, you have that grace and mercy. You have the ability to grow now. You have that mentor that is God's word. So I pray you guys benefit from this. I pray this sparks some good conversations and I pray you keep following the blog and the podcast and we keep growing and learning with each other.